Christ. Am I going to comment on the Saints game? Is that what you said? Oh, if I'm going to play something, play Saints music. I just want you to know the way I'm dressed today is a statement of faith. No, no, you don't understand. Just because it's black and gold, uh, I was going to wear my Saints jersey today. But I felt like that would be a statement of doubt. Because then I'd be saying, because I don't think I'll get to wear it in two weeks. So I didn't wear it today in faith, believing that I'm going to wear it in two weeks. So anyway. And so, somebody asked, you know, hey, we're doing this idol series and attaching that to the saints thing. You know, I don't think that's an issue of idolatry. I think this, we're, just, we're just flat in the realm of miraculous at this point, you know. <clears throat> we're proving at this point that God is not a cessationist, that he still is continuing to do intruding work into the affairs of humanity. Um, anyway. Well, we are in part three of our series on personal idols and... Uh, I'm getting so much feedback from folks with regard to the series, the covenant group meetings, the book, Counterfeit Gods. I've gotten so much good feedback on Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. Uh, If you've not availed yourself of that, please, please do. Uh, You will not regret the time you'll spend there. And and it's not too late. We're going to be in this series for a little while, and the book reads pretty quickly. It's, It's not a uh, overly challenging theological book, very well theologically rooted, but written very accessibly. So a lot of great feedback. And and this morning, I really haven't felt a sense of release as I've kind of been studying. I don't feel a sense of release to run on very far. So the first three weeks, uh, we're kind of in the same neighborhood. We're just exploring some of the same streets venturing into this issue of idolatry. And the more folks I've talked to, the more I have felt that's confirmed, that we are, we're needing to come to a place where we see idolatry, period, and where we understand how it operates and how it feels in our lives so that we can adequately move on from it. So this, this is not a desire for us. Let's just stay in the muck and the mire of idolatry. Let's just talk about the nastiness of idols. Uh, no, no, we, we, we want to move on. Um, but, you know, if you, when you look at the, the scriptures, you know, when you find the division in the Bible kind of looks like Old Covenant, New Covenant, and, you, and when then you start looking at how much of the Old Covenant is devoted to instructions of concern about idolatry that flow out of the First Commandment, And then all the prophets, the enormous books of the Bible that are devoted to the people actually living in idolatry and needing to have that addressed. It's obvious that needing to have a good insight into how idolatry functions in us. And interestingly enough, I came across this quote in your outline there from an interview that Christianity Today did with Tim Keller about his book that was being released last fall. They asked the question, how do we get rid of idols? Now, we haven't even gone there yet. But how do we get rid of idols? And Keller interestingly says this, I confess that I don't say much about that. And if you've gotten to the end of the book, you're probably saying, all right, Tim, I'm with you. What do I do now? And maybe he needs to write a sequel. 
But listen to what he says. He says, I do say that analyzing and recognizing an idol is a step away from its power over you. Analyzing and recognizing an idol is a step, a very important step, away from its power and control over us in our lives. See, when we talk about idolatry, we're not just talking about the familiar category of sin. Idolatry is sin. Anything that falls short of the glory of God is sin. Anything that misses the mark of God's glorious perfection, that's sin. But idolatry... Idolatry kind of is to sin what, what a factory is to the goods that it produces. You can follow that. Right? Factories produce things. Idolatry produces sin. Idolatry functions in my heart in such a way that it begins to populate my life with attitudes and actions and sin against people a certain way and selfish steps and fears that's all coming out of this factory center that's producing idols. You know, one of the things that happened in World War II, a lot of the great bombing campaigns that went on in World War II by the Air Force were about flying way behind enemy lines. All the lines were here, and there was this huge warfare taking place across the front. But they didn't necessarily just spend all their time bombing out the front. They would fly behind the lines of the front to the factory centers. And they'd bomb out the factories because they knew if they could stop the production of the tanks and the machinery and the weaponry that was coming to the front line, they could win the war on the front line. And that's kind of what this study is all about. If we only live our life in a place where we're analyzing how we sin and we just need to stop doing that, but behind the lines, those front lines are, you know, the places where we're having conflict. The front lines are, are where our issues are being worn towards one another. But behind those front lines, there's a reason why I'm doing that. Something is producing these things in me. And if we can go there and spend our warfare there, then we begin to win on the front line a whole lot easier. There's something about idolatry as you study it and as I hear guys discussing it. um, There's a subtleness to idolatry that it tends to be stealth-like. It hides. And you you find it a challenge. It's one thing to stand up and say, okay, can everybody stand up for just a moment and just confess sin? You know, probably most of us could say, yeah, Tuesday, this, uh, all week, this. Uh, You know, we could go there. But then you, maybe you've noticed that you start to kind of look at the idolatrous component of it. it it's not as easy to discover that. Well, here's, a, here's an interesting thought. John Calvin says, The evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want, but that we want it too much. See, now I think what we've relegated sinful analysis to is, is that wrong? Is that thing wrong? Is that thing wrong? Is this thing wrong to have in my life? Is that thing wrong to have in my life? You know, and the Bible does come right out and say some of those things simply are wrong. But you know, there can be some right things that we want the wrong way. And that's idolatrous. 
You know, a lot of us think that money is evil, right? Doesn't the Bible say that? Good for you. That's as close as I come to Peter Davidson behavior, by the way. <laughs> I'm slowly being corrupted. You, at some point, you won't want to answer any of my questions either. Um, <laughs> the Bible doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. So, you know, don't make the mistake of looking at somebody and saying, huh, look at the size of that dude's bank account. I can tell by the car he drives. That dude's just, I mean, he's just wearing idolatry. Listen, you cannot have the right car and not have the right money in your wallet and be wanting money more than that guy does. And money's more of an idol for you than it is for him. Marriage isn't a bad thing, is it? The Bible tells us it's good to be married. Children aren't a bad thing, are they? Uh, Just kidding, guys. (laughs) The Bible says they're a blessing. There are things in our lives that the Bible calls good, but how many of you know they can become corrupt and idolatrous? Marriage can be an idol in your life. The desire to be married can be so big. Is it wrong to have any desire to be married? No, not at all. But if the desire to be married goes from here to here, it will become controlling, dominating, and you'll see it take its effect on your walk with God and who God is and how you're looking to Him versus how you're looking to that. Now, you could get married and then have this idealistic, which he's got a great chapter. Great chapter. If you've read that chapter yet, everybody needs to read the book, period. But great insight on you can get married... And you have these expectations for what marriage is going to be. Is it wrong to have expectations about marriage? No, because the Bible tells us all kinds of things about the role of the husband, the role of the wife, and how to work through things. That develops in me expectations. But when I take that and I go with my expectations and my desires and my cravings and i got to have it that way from here to here, now what I have on my hands is a marriage that can never satisfy me. And I'm totally bound up in complaining and critiquing and this isn't and you're not and if it weren't for you. Is it because marriage is wrong? We should all repent of marriage. No, it's because I have an idolatrous desire for my marriage to be something beyond what it should be and what God has said for it to be. So I think a lot of helpful insight with John Calvin's thought there. But this is what makes idolatry a little bit different of an animal than studying sin. It is sin, but it has ambition in it. It has desire bound up in it. So you're kind of looking for it a little bit differently. But I, I want to say this because I think it's important for us as we dig deep enough to find idols. They tend to be deep issues. Sin... You know, hang around me a little bit and you can find some sin blooming on the edges of my life. Idols, a little harder to find and locate the epicenter for an idol. What were you wanting in that moment? And then you'll find that some of these things have been in us for a long time. They're just the familiar ways that we operate. They're the ways that we've gotten used to negotiating life. Well, that makes it hard to deal with. So I just want to tell us up front, if we're going to get any mileage and any benefit from God in this study, 
we're going to need to be ready to deal roundly, as the Puritan said, with our soul. Take our soul to task and go round after round with it. Because you will not deal with an idol casually. You will not answer one altar call and be done with an idol. Anything you can do in that category, which you can do some things in that category, it hasn't become an idol yet. It's pre-idolatrous. So if you can knock it out with one punch, it wasn't an idol yet. If you hit it and hit it and hit it and it stands and looks you back in the face and says, that's all you got? (laughs) That's about all you had last year too. That's an idol. So much more of a challenge to deal with. But listen, listen to this thought, very helpful from a book called Breaking the Idols of Your Heart. It says, perhaps you are familiar with the idols that are described in books like Exodus and Isaiah. These were false gods represented by statues. They had names like Baal, Marduk, Asherah. People put these idols in the center of their life. They became people's ultimate concerns. Now listen carefully. Men and women offered them material goods and labor and time with the hope that the gods would make their lives better. That right there is very helpful. This is why you and I are candidates for idolatry. Because we're shopping for things to make our lives better. If I, I mean, how many of us are daydreaming some day of our life, maybe this morning, (laughs) if I could just have fill in the blank, then, then I would be happy. Now, if you can say that, and you fill in the blank with anything but God, you have an idol on your hands. You have something that wants to stand in the place of God and be to you something that God was supposed to be. And God wants to be. So if if you and I are looking for happiness somewhere out there, we're, we're just hoping somewhere, something, right relationship, finally getting those debts paid off, getting into this career situation, uh, overcoming some health thing, whatever it is that we have hung our hope on for our life being good, you'll find yourself spending something on that. Maybe it's money. Most definitely it's probably time. Maybe it's just mental time. Maybe it's a lot of rehearsing and thinking and daydreaming and hoping that if this, if this would just go that way, oh, and, and a sense of hope sort of comes in just because you're window shopping. You, know, you don't own it yet, but you hope that, oh, you know, if this relationship just works out, I mean, I don't know if it will, but it kind of looks like maybe, and all of a sudden you, you feel hope rising up in your heart. It's like you feel hope rising up in your heart in a way that God hasn't caused it to rise up in your heart. So this is the grief of God. This is that James passage that we'll go into more, I'm sure, where God calls us an adulterous people because he jealously yearns for the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. God is jealous that he would be that to us. Not, oh, if I could just get that person to this or if that situation just worked out or if if people just like me this way then I, I know I'd be happy. And the reason I'm not happy down there, see, it turns ugly now. This is where you start discovering the sin about it, where you're accusing people. You're judging them. And then this, and my life is this way because of that one. And now how can I possibly forgive him for what he's done? Why? If you could complete the sentence, what would you say? Because he stole my life when he did that. 
I know you feel like you're a victim in that moment, but you are also an idolater. You have put somebody on the throne of hope and joy and satisfaction in life. And this is why we go after idols, because we think there is benefit in them. My life can be better if I can just have that. Now listen where he goes with this, that last line in that first paragraph. He says, no matter your age, we offer this book to you as an invitation to rediscover the abundant life that comes with putting Jesus in the center of life. How can this happen? It starts with being brutally honest. It starts with a deep dissatisfaction with the way things are. And a hungry willingness to try something completely different. Now this is a good starting place for us. Because the train will pull out of the station at some point. So the Lord kind of, I think, impressed on us last week. And, and you're going to get on that train and move in this category if you are those three things. If you are brutally honest. If you're not sitting here today saying, you know, boy, I'm sure God, somebody's getting something out of this. I mean, yeah, the book's pretty good. And, you know, I'm not trafficking in it real deeply. Uh, listen, idolatry is so pervasive. It would be safe for me to say here there's not a person in this building who is not fighting with idolatry. The only question is how brutally honest I'm being about it. And whether or not I'm coming out with the real embarrassing idol that I'm serving. We all want to polish up why we did that and why we do that. and It's just more convenient to say, you know, I've led a crippled life because of people in my past. And, and you know, you understand, don't you? You know, let me tell you about my mom and my dad and my this and my that. And what does all that do? Well, it may be factual. It may really have a lot of issues that really do need to be dealt with in our life. But, but the way I'm using it is, it is it lowers your expectation of me. It gives me permission. See, I'm just going to be less of, you know, whoever I'm supposed to be. You know, my, my wife, can, she can't expect that much from me. I mean, given my past, and, you know, what does that do for me? It helps me to feel better about me when I serve my idol of not wanting to be a failure in the eyes of anybody. Am I being brutally honest like that? Or am I just living at the place where, listen, you know, listen, I know I'm not, I know I'm not perfect. I mean, who is, right? Is that as deep as it goes? I mean, I mean Keith, do I have sin issues? Huh. Yeah, I mean, yeah, of course. That's not brutal honesty. That's con- convenient agreement. Brutal honesty is put the ugliness on that thing that it needs. Peel back the veneer of that paint that you got on the thing and look at just how ugly the face of that sucker really is. It's ugly. Brutal honesty. Then when we're brutally honest, you know, how about deep dissatisfaction? Are you, are you just sick of being the way you are? I'm just sick of it. That'll make all the difference in the world on whether or not you jump on the train with hungry willingness. See, if you're not sick of you yet, I very much doubt you'll do the legwork that it takes to deal with your idols. You're not sick of you. This is why some will jump on with both feet. Some will wait and be passed by. So the urgency of today is in the title. Don't be idle about your idols. 
Don't just be listening and being aware, but not being aggressive. And I'm going to give us two reasons today that are in our best interest. Ultimately, the reason why we do anything is for the glory of God. But God sometimes turns to us and says, hey, you know what? This will be good for you too. And quite honestly, every time something glorifies God, it is the best thing for us. That's a connection we don't ever want to disconnect. But two reasons that very much serve our best interest not to be idle. One is idolatry brings harm. And the second is idolatry is quite stubborn. It's in your best interest not to give it room in your life. So let me just walk first through idolatry brings harm. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 7. A lot of our passages will come in this series out of the prophets because they are addressing idolatry. Jeremiah chapter 7 is God's word to his people who have retained a relationship with God in their mind, and yet they have also pursued idols. Verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who entered these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Not trust in this deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, right? These are all those exterior things. Remember the model we put up? Did everybody get one of these handouts today? I know we had a bunch of them given out. This idle architecture handout. Raise your hand if you didn't get one of these. In your, it's an extra little handout. All right, please pick that up when you leave today. There was more made there in the Welcome Center. Um, if I have time, I'll explain a little bit further today. All these exteriors, the fatherless of the widow caring for them or shed innocent blood in this place. And if you, listen, if you do not go after other gods to your own harm. When you and I go after other gods, it is to our own harm that we do it. It is guaranteed it will at some point, probably not immediately. This is a deceptive part. It will bring harm into our lives. We have signed on for harm. The New American Standard translates that same verse, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin. Idols act like they're going to benefit us, while in reality they ruin us. They harm us. But that's not how they advertise themselves, though, is it? You know, idols don't ever pop up into your life sounding like a drug commercial on TV. Have you seen the drug commercials on TV? Remember years ago, I think you could advertise a drug without highlighting its side effects. Well, now you have to say the side effects. And some of these commercials, they're just downright comical. You know, they're about 10 seconds of benefit followed by, you know, a minute worth of, why would I want to take that? You know? Gene and I were watching something the other day, and this commercial, I actually had to go online and get a copy of this for you. This is the latest drug to help those who are smoking to stop smoking called Chantix. Have you seen this commercial? It's out there, so you may see it in the next week. 
and, and you were going to die laughing. Listen to this commercial. I think I'd rather die smoking than take this. And they kind of read it like they're reading fine print on the bottom. The guy says it real fast. So I can't quite do it the way he does it. But, but here's the warning. You know, the advertised benefit is you can stop smoking. Warning. Serious neuropsychiatric events, including but not limited to depression, suicidal ideation, suicide attempt, and completed suicide, have been reported in patients taking Chantix. All patients being treated with Chantix should be observed for neuropsychiatric symptoms, including changes in behavior, hostility, agitation, depressed mood, suicide-related events, including ideation, behavior, and attempted suicide. These symptoms, as well as worsening of pre-existing psychiatric illness and completed suicide, have been reported in some patients attempting to quit smoking while using Chantex. <laughs> okay, I'm thinking, okay, i got a bad habit, i got a gun to my head. Which one do I want? <laughs> uh, I think I'll just pass. <laughs> and then at the bottom of this, is that this, this should be what every idol in our life is required to put at the bottom of its presentation to us. The risks of Chantix should be weighed against the benefits of its use. <laughs> Idols don't pop up that way, do they? And say, look, you get me involved in your life, and I'll guarantee you this, and you'll feel this way, and it'll be beneficial to you this way. And then they just stop there. They're not required by law to say, but the risks involves this and this and this and this and this, and the long list of real risks that you take when you sign on to get an agreement with an idol. And you should seriously consider the risks and not just the immediate benefit, right? The scripture says there's a way that seems right to a man. But in the end, it's the way of death. You know, the, the idol leaves off the in the end thing. He says, just doesn't this seem right? And quite honestly, that word seem, what a word. It just, when idols come and they say, if you could just have this, if you could just get people to, if you could just, it seems right, doesn't it? There's something inside of you that says, man, that is, that is so right on. But the rest of the commercial is, this leads to death. It leads to harm. It leads to ruin. See, Israel was drawn to, to get something of benefit from these idols. Remember that quote earlier? Men and women offered them material goods and labor and time with the hope that the gods would make their lives better. You move into a land that you've never been in before. Your neighbor over there, his crops are growing. His cattle are reproducing. He's got a big family. You get to know him a little bit, shake hands, how's it going? And he, and he talks about Baal worship. He worships Baal and Asherah. He's into the fertility gods. And, and your crops, maybe they're struggling a little bit. Yours don't seem to be growing as fast. You don't have as big a flat. You know, we start thinking very pragmatically. It's working for him. I want what he has. I want that. There's, you know, there's a benefit. Baal, Baal brings a benefit here. And don't get me wrong. I'm not looking to abandon God. Right? Nobody's looking to abandon God. He's just going to... Give a little bit of respect. I'm going to get involved with this bail program over here. And so I can do what? Get some benefits. All the gods that were in the Old Testament, they were gods of benefit. They brought protection. They were gods of war. So you lived amongst the people. You didn't know if they'd turn on you, but you had the god of war on your side. And so you could rest at night because you put your faith in some deity that you believe would step in if you got into a bind. 
You're looking for benefit. That's what they were looking for. Well, here in our lives, the quest to find life for the soul, apart from God, has deadly side effects. When we pursue idolatry, it comes with a list of deadly side effects. I'm just going to hit a few, just random. This is not an exhaustive list by any means. Separation from God. Listen, the worst day in human history was the day Adam and Eve made a decision in the garden. And quite honestly, they really did follow a pattern of idolatry when they made that decision. The benefits were advertised to them. The devil came and he said, look at the fruit. It's pleasing to the eyes. It's a good thing. Oh, and listen, I know God said, don't eat of that tree. But listen, God told you that for a reason that you shouldn't respect that. Because God knows the day that you eat of that tree, your eyes are going to be opened. And you're going to be like God himself, able to discern good and evil. See, up until this time, you two knuckleheads, you can't figure out what's... You've got to go to God for all that, don't you? Yeah, right, I know. You've got to be totally dependent, 100% on God, to tell you, is that good or bad? Wouldn't it be better if you could just make that call for yourself? And off they went. And they made a decision. Did it have consequences to it? Were there side effects to eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You and I are living in the side effects today. Nobody ever made such a big decision, ever. Somebody needed to come on immediately after that. You know, (laughs) warning. (laughs) Taking Chantex could lead to complete global disaster, disease, uh, you know. The proliferation of side effects that came from that day, immediately into their life, came issues. All of a sudden, all of creation is very confusing to them. Here they live at peace in the garden. God dwelt among them. Everything made sense. Now, all of a sudden, they're afraid of certain animals. They were afraid of certain animals before. There was a lack of cooperation that suddenly come into God's creation. You can't just plant stuff and it grows anymore. Now you got to sweat and work. The sense of, of shame that came into their world. They, they'd never known before that day what it was to run away from God. They were like children. When the presence of God was real in the garden, they ran towards it. It was a delight. They weren't afraid. Now, all of a sudden, everything feels weird. And remember, God has to come and find them because they're hiding from God. Well, Whoever made you think you should hide from God? You, know, you get very confused. You start signing on for idols. All of a sudden, life is, is messed up. Just a, a short chapter away, we have Adam and Eve have children, Cain and Abel. And Cain is overcome with anger in his life. And he wants to kill Abel. And he's questioned on that. What? Why are you so angry and why is your countenance fallen like that, Cain? If you do well, will you not be accepted? What? Will you not be accepted? All of a sudden, there's this quest for acceptance in him and his offering wasn't accepted and he's weirded out. He wants to kill somebody over it. Um, No one said anything about that when it was just an offer to eat from the tree, though, was it? See, at this point, there was a decision made by man that God... We don't want you out of the picture. We just want an alternative to you. We want to be able to pursue something on our own. We want a God alternative. 
And so Adam and Eve made a decision in the garden, and they chose a God alternative. That's what idolatry is. It's having in our lives a God alternative. I don't need to go to God for this thing. I will go to my idol for it. I will find my hope, my satisfaction, my future in that. Now listen, there's a reality here this morning. Because most of what I'm going to say has to do with the fact that many of us have come into a relationship with God and yet still struggle with idolatry. But there would be some of us here this morning who have never even come into a relationship with God. Oh, we're religious and stuff. But God's not at the center of our life. And we're not even fighting for him to be there. And when we hear the term idolatry thrown out there, we start thinking, well, idolatry, that's those people that just completely abandon God. They don't, they don't want God and they're cursing God. They don't want God in their life. You know, that's not the idolatry you find anywhere amongst the people of God in the Old Testament. That was the thing. They never wanted to abandon God. They just wanted something else with God. Now, the Canaanites, they didn't believe in God. That's your God. Our God's Baal and Asherah. But the people who knew something about God, the idolatry described throughout all the scriptures is God and something else. It's just shoving God to the side a little bit. It's not taking him out of the picture completely, you see. But God comes in and says, no, no, no. Idolatry is when you move me from the center and something else is there. Even if I get to stay in the picture. So there, there's some of us need to come to the reality that that brings a separation from God. That sin separates us from God. Even though in our estimation, God's still in the picture with me. What do you, what do you mean he's separated? I'm not cursing God. It's not like I don't appreciate that there is a God and that he's you know, at work in the world. Sure, I'm, I'm all for that. But he's not the center of your life. Well, then that's idolatry. God's not just making a big deal over the fact that people have cursed him and abandoned him, don't want anything at all to do with him. Idolatry in the Old Testament was people who wanted God and something else. And that's what God makes all the noise about. Christopher Wright says, Humans have breached the creator-creature distinction. Not that humans have now become gods, that's what Satan said would happen, but that they have chosen to act as though they were. Defining and deciding for themselves what they will regard as good and evil. At the root, then, all idolatry is human rejection of the godness of God and the finality of God's moral authority. It's an interesting phrase. Defining and deciding for themselves what they will regard as good and evil. Now, that's happening, right? I mean, watch the news. That's happening all over the place, isn't it? Humanity has decided that, you know, we'll decide what the best definition for a marriage is. So we're going to have to work through all these laws that have made marriage only for men and women. And we got that. We'll decide. That, that's, that's a limited, archaic idea. You know, men and men and women and women. That works, too, for all these reasons, right? Welcome to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now remember, in the garden, man was never intended to be able to have the ability to be independent of God and have life make sense. That was a lie from the devil. There was a reason why God said you can eat of everything else, but do not eat of that tree. Because you can't handle the knowledge of good and evil. 
without me. All these judgments that we make, all this sitting on the throne of Moses and judging one another, you and I don't have enough information to judge stuff. Our brains are too small. The access to the information we need isn't there. God knows everything. So he truly can look on something and say, no, that's evil. What do you mean it's evil, God? From my vantage point, it looks good. Well, that's the problem. Your vantage point. Your very limited vantage point. At the end of the day, that's as evil as you could ever imagine. Oh, gee, God, I really can't imagine it's all that evil, so I'm going to go ahead and do that. I'm going to go ahead and agree with that law. I just, I mean... (laughs) just saw where I think John McCain's wife has come out and made a statement about homosexual marriages and um, Laura Bush has come out making a statement about how to handle that, that issue. See, this is the dilemma here. It really doesn't matter what my opinion is. The God who owns the planet has say-so over what a marriage is. But, oh, see, but we're independent from him because of idolatry because we worship something else, because we think that's of more benefit to us than what God has said. That's where the idolatry comes from. So there's separation from that. There's spiritual insensitivity. Right, turn to Psalm 115. This is probably more likely where some of us as believers are experiencing the fallout of idolatry in our lives. Most of us can jump on board quickly with, uh, yeah, I don't agree with that. I agree with that kind of a marriage thing. Here, well, it gets a little more challenging when you can't get into a marriage and you know, wives have to figure out how to submit to their husbands. I don't know if I agree with that idea either. <laughs> well, but that's God's idea, just like marriage was God's idea. How it works and what makes it work, that's God's idea too. So to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and say, you know what, God... I'll evaluate that one on my own. I really don't need any guidance from you in that category. So we do that as well. Psalm 115. It says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Now remember, do you reason why the nations would say that? Because God didn't allow his people to make graven images of him. So when you walked into Israel, you looked around and you said, where's the tiki? Where's the Asherah pole? Where's the image? Where's their God? They don't even have a God. Well, our God is in the heavens. And unlike your God who doesn't really exist, he does whatever he pleases. He does stuff. Our God's for real. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but they do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Now here's the difficulty. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Become what? Deaf and blind and not hearing and not seeing and not sensing and not receiving from God. 
Now, this is a rule that whether you knew, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know. This, this is kind of like uh, those, those nasty little picture things that catch you going through a red light. I have a little experience with that, unfortunately. <laughs> Whether you were aware or not that, oh, I thought I made it through that intersection. <laughs> and then they send you this irrefutable evidence, you know, there's a timer there and there's a line there and there's a picture and it's got the back of your head right there. <laughs> it's like, ooh, I didn't, I didn't know that. See, this is one of those things. Ooh, so... When I trust in an idol, I become like the idol? No one told me that. Deaf, I don't hear well. Eyes get blinded, I don't perceive things well. Now physically, this is not talking about physical dynamics, is it? It's talking about spiritual dynamics. Right? Jeremiah came along and said, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not who have ears but hear not. How often is that phrase repeated in Scripture? A lot. Because idolatry is at work in the human heart. And when you and I serve idols, we become that. J.K. Beale, who wrote a book called We Become What We Worship, it's a theological anthem on just this one point. He says, why are the idolaters depicted as people whose sensory organs malfunction like that? The Bible is telling us that Israel revered idols and became like them, spiritually insensitive. They had eyes, but they could not see the harm happening to them. And they had ears, but they could not hear the destruction occurring within themselves. Thus they could not repent and be healed. And this headlong progression deeper into idolatrous sin and anesthetized hurt led to their ruin. Edward Meters says, As idols have eyes but cannot see and ears but cannot hear, so idolaters lose their sensory faculties as they conform to created inanimate objects. And that's exactly what God said would happen. God said that's what will happen to those who trust in idols. You will become like them. And we read this. This continues into the New Testament. right? Romans chapter 1 is, is a... An advertisement for why the gospel is needed. And the reason why the gospel is needed is because man has exchanged the glory of God for the glory of creation. And that's idolatry. That's why we need the gospel. But one of the passages in that chapter says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This this is a picture of spiritual dullness. Idolatry produces dullness in the life of Christians. It's interesting. There used to be this phrase, if you've been around church for many, many years, especially maybe Pentecostal churches, you would have heard the phrase, the heavens are like brass. Y'all heard that phrase, the heavens are like brass? It was typically used... When people were praying, and they're trying to hear from God. (laughs) I just need some direction from God about this, and I'm praying, and I'm praying, and then the heavens are like brass. You know where that phrase comes from? It comes from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 28, where you find these blessings and curses, where God says, you know, if 
If, if I'm God for you, I'm going to bless you this way. If you make something else a God for you, then all these curses are going to come, come upon you. Do you know what one of the curses was? The heavens will be like brass and they won't yield rain and I'll send drought amongst the land. So when someone stands and says, the heavens are like brass, what they mean today is not it hadn't rained in a long time. It's that I haven't heard anything from God. I just can't seem to hear from God. Now, how many of us go through a season like that and we want to take God to court over it? Like God's the one who's screwing up here. So why won't God say something? And I've been praying, I'm asking God, and I, I don't know what to do. And it's like God isn't saying anything. You ever feel like this God is, is way, way off? Maybe I didn't connect the fact that I've become like the idols that I'm serving. Deaf and blind. It's not like God's not having something to say to my life. It's that I don't have ears to hear him anymore. Because I've I got issues of idolatry going on in my life. There are things that I want, and I want it more than anything else. And to be brutally honest, in those moments, I want it more than God. And all of a sudden, my ears have lost their ability to hear for some strange reason. No, no, let's not take God to court on that. Let's find out whether or not we have been trusting in something besides God, and it's impairing our hearing. And if we'd stop trusting in those things... We begin to hear God. At the heart of idolatry is whether or not we're going to obey. So if God were to tell you his will and, you're, and you have an idol in your heart, guess what? You wouldn't do it anyway. You might as well not hear. Because I'm bound up with this thing over here. I'm going to do what this thing tells me to do. I'm very limited by it. Let me skip this last one. Drawing the opposition and discipline of God. Um, you can read those passages there. They are important. I just don't want to run out of time here. <clears throat> idols bring harm to us. And lastly, idols are stubborn. Jeremiah thirteen ten. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them. What's very common is this use of the words stubborn and stubbornly to describe the attitude of the heart of those who are serving idols. It's all over the Old Testament. Psalm 81 says, But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Beale says, In the context, the stubbornness of their heart and walking in their own devices is respectively their intractable commitment to worship idols and continuing to commit the sin of idolatry. In fact, whenever the word stubbornness occurs in the Hebrew Bible, it refers without exception to Israel's idolatry. And that's very interesting. This is, this is telling because this reveals the nature of what an idol feels like in us. It's when we become stubborn, strongly emotionally bent on one thing over another. I'd love to say that's always a righteous outbreak of the Spirit of God. <laughs> More realistically, it's something in our lives that we want with an idolatrous passion. And we are intractable. We are immovable when it comes to that issue. When we start using language like this, refuse, I will not, 
I don't care what. I will not. Right? You ever have that conversation with somebody? Somebody's coming to you with some corrective measure, trying to restore your life in some way, point you back towards a person, and you start puckering. You have no idea what that person does. I will, I will not. That refusal, that my feet are in the cement posture, it's idolatry. Now, now listen. Remember, hopefully we've done enough homework here that you're not dragging tiki images with you right now. It's like, well, what am I worshiping in this moment? Well, you know what you might be worshiping in that moment? Safety and security. I don't want to be hurt again. Matter of fact, not only do I not want to be hurt again, I will not be hurt again. Anytime you will not, you might want to be carefully examining that. That's a spot that's got some roots that's growing deep down in you. It's not just the things that, you know, idols are what I want. Oh, I'll do anything to have that. Idols are also what I will not. I will not. And that's not so much a desire to acquire something. It's an idol that wants to protect something. I'm afraid. I've been hurt. Do you understand how badly I've been hurt? Try, try and work with somebody who's seeking to restore a relationship, restore marriage. That was really bad. And, and what you get is a desire for somebody not to be hurt. Now go with me here for a second. Is it wrong for you not to want to be hurt? No. But the evil in our desires is not so much in what we want but in that we want it too much. I don't want to be hurt, and I will not take the chance again. But, but what if in that hurt is the most amazing God-glorifying event that you could have ever imagined? It doesn't matter. I'm not going there. Wait, wait, wait. Well, then you just stopped living for the glory of God. You're right. The backside of what I'm talking to you about is the cross, isn't it? There was never a more painful moment in any human being's life, in the existence of humanity, than what Jesus Christ experienced on the cross. Easily, if there was any other will to be pursued or benefit in the universe than the will of God, the Son of God says, I I am not going there. So listen, it is not the will of God It was not the will of God for the Son of God. It is not the will of God for any of us to be ultimately rescued from all pain. We don't get to live a pain-free environment. And it's not the will of God that you would. So when the idol of painless living, comfort, emotional comfort, physical comfort becomes an idol, I will do everything in my power to avoid that pain right there. Everything. That's an idol. Because it could be God for you to go exactly right there so that he can resurrect something and blow your mind and see the glory of God come into that moment. And let me close with this thought. Turn to Joshua chapter 24. There is a stubbornness in idolatry that should be very sobering for us. And it is both intimidating but helpful that we would see this not only is there stubbornness in us because of idolatry but idols themselves are stubborn dynamics 
They don't want to leave, and they are specialists at being tenacious and hard to uproot. Joshua chapter 24. Right, remember where Joshua is? They've come out of Egypt. They've begun to conquer the land of the promised land. Moses is dead. This is the very end of Joshua's life, who took over after Moses died. Joshua gathered all the tribes, verse 1, of Israel to Shechem. And summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, right? The Euphrates River in the Middle East. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor. And they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Can you get the reference here? Long, long ago, your forefathers served other gods beyond the river. Okay, fast forward to this moment. They're gathered together. It's the end of Joshua's life. He is imploring the people of God to live for the glory of God. Look in verse... 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. What? Joshua, why are you having to have this conversation with these people? That wasn't yesterday. It was over 700 years ago. They haven't been on that side of the river for over 700 years. And you're having to tell them to put away the gods that came from there? What does that tell you about idolatry? It doesn't go easily, does it? It's a lot of history here. You've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Joseph and all the dealings through Joseph's lies in there in Egypt. And you got Moses. I mean, you got all these events where God's revealed himself to his people. And they're still holding on to idols from the other side of the Euphrates River. Not only those gods, he has to tell them to put away the gods of Egypt. Now, you know, I, I know we're right here with them, so I have to be careful about how dumb I really think this is. Because we're right here with them. It's just been 50 short years since the gods of Egypt had a showdown with God. Do you remember the Passover event? Do you remember how many plagues were there? There were ten plagues. Some of y'all need to read your Bible some more. There were ten plagues. Why were there ten? Why not seven? That's a good godly number, right? Seven, seven days. Why not twelve, twelve tribes? Ten. Because God brought judgment on ten gods in Egypt. And he handpicked what they were in charge of. Because remember, gods bring benefit, right? The god of the Nile. So he goes through and he basically says, watch this. I'm God and that one's not. Next day, I'm God and that one's not. 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 And that one's not. not." By the time they're done, they got no gods with any power in the land. And 50 years later, Joshua's having to tell them, Remember the gods that God showed up and showed that they weren't gods at all? Would you please put those things away and stop serving them? Can you believe that? Unfortunately, we can, huh? 
Adam Clark says, How astonishing is this, that after all God had done for them and all the miracles they had seen, there should still be found among them both idols and idolaters. Man, you can go ahead. All right, why is this so revealing? Because here's what will happen. You introduce a subject like this, and you and I decide, oh, I'm going to read the book. I'm going to do some of the homework. I'm going to pray. I'm going to interact. And we step into this arena, and we get met by something that's about ten times more stubborn than we were ready to face. Something that can hang around for 700 years. Something that can be shown to be totally false. That years ago, I remember, yeah, I used to hope in that. How did that ever come back? I knew that was a vain hope. That couldn't help me. Only God could, and here I am, 20 years later, and I'm back serving that God again. See, idols are stubborn. So I tell you that for two reasons. One, if you're going to fight, and I hope we're all going to fight, you're going to fight something that's very stubborn. Do not be discouraged if the first time you hit it real hard, it doesn't move. The second time, it's still trying to recover from the laughter from the first time. Idols are stubborn. Secondly, if you're entertaining the thought that some idol, something that you could put your hope in, that might be a road to go down. Be very sobered by what you're about to open up in your life. If it's not in your life right now, don't open up some 700-year can of worms that not only won't want to leave your life, but... It won't want to leave your children's lives either. It will want to be around for a long, long time. So let's not let our let's not be idle about our idols. All right? Let's stand up together.